You're invited to join Anna and Sam at our new regional event, the Food and Faith Gathering. A collaboration between the Food and Faith podcast and the Keep and Till. On November 9th, 2019 at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, you'll join congregations, practitioners, dreamers, and advocates as we discuss issues around food, ecology, community, and social justice. Head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org to register. Tickets are $25 each, which include breakfast and lunch. We'll be joined by Heber Brown, Karen Mann, Dave Baldwin, and Sam as speakers, along with a trip to the Keep and Tell Farm for lunch and for worship. And if you want to be a founding member of the Patreon supporters team for the pod by committing to give $5 a month, you can attend the gathering for free. So head over to foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather to register. That's foodandfaithpodcast.org slash gather. We'll see you on November 9th at McDaniel College at the Food and Faith Gathering. Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Sam Chamlin and Anna Wuffenden. So welcome Food and Faith Podcast. We have a guest that we should have had a long time ago. It makes me laugh that it's taken so long to get us here. Uh, A guest who has been super influential in my own journey, providing both inspiration um, and friendship and encouragement, Dr. Nate Stuckey. Um, who is the director of the Farminary at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, and also is author with a new book out called Wrestling with Rest, and we're looking forward to chatting about that. So, Nate, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's good to see you. And good absolutely. To you. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be on. Privileged. And so we're going to start where we always do um, with our geography question. So um, certainly a part of your geography these days is, uh, is Princeton, um, a beautiful part of the country, tucked away in New Jersey. But also a part of geography that we share is uh, you spend a good bit of time in Maryland, which I'm always glad to have Maryland people on. So just share a little bit with our guests, a little bit about your geography as you understand it, the place and the people that have shaped you. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great question. Um, so I have to start the response to that question in South Central Kansas. Uh, I grew up about 30 miles west of Wichita. Kingman, Kansas is where I went to school, went to church in a little town called Pretty Prairie. Uh, and uh, I mean, come on. Uh, exactly. <laughs> out there on the Great Plains, uh, little, um, actually not that little, but a, a Mennonite church that liter- literally grew up out of the prairie um, um, on the outskirts of Pretty Prairie, Kansas. So grew up there, went to college in Kansas. Um, and, you know, the geography there, my dad farmed um, when I was a kid. So it's wheat fields and black Angus cattle and um, went to central Kansas. Yeah. The Nineska river and you know, all these kind of beautiful markers from my, my parents are still there in the house where I grew up and from, from their window facing South, you can overlook the Nineska Valley, um, which now at night you look out and it's like, there are hundreds of red flashing lights on the top of wind turbines. There's big, big wind farm out there. But anyway, that's that's where I grew up, um, and and definitely have roots there uh, to this day. Um, and like I said, went to college there, and then moved to the eastern shore of Maryland, um, and lived out there for for six years. And um, remind me what town you were in. 
So we were in the country, but our, our address was Westover, which is like about 18 buildings in the middle of nowhere, um, but almost all the way down to the Virginia border. Um, oh, okay. So Pocomoke City, um, Salisbury was north of us. Um, so, so yeah, Chesapeake Bay and all that that represents was a really important part of, of that season. There were, there was, were people in the congregations that I served that, you know, made their living on the water um, and had family members that made their living on the water, went out uh, crabbing on the bay with uh, an old waterman. Um, absolutely uh, incredible. Um, and then, of course, the Maryland blue crabs and the uh, oysters and the softshell crabs, you know, all that stuff was... Um, became part of, of who we are as, as well as at least a little bit of sand in our toes uh, oh, from the beaches. Absolutely. Although to this, although to this day, you know, there's like, are you, uh, are you the, the mountain person or the beach person? And I, I'd, I'd still go more mountain prairie than I would beach, but you know, there's still a little sand in the toes. Hey, there's um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then, then, uh, then the third place that's really been influential is, is Princeton, New Jersey, uh, where we are now and even New Jersey more broadly. And I should confess, uh, you know, uh, in, in the spirit of full disclosure here, um, it was never a goal of mine, uh, ever to settle in New Jersey. Uh, I don't, you know, it just like wasn't a thing. My only experience of New Jersey prior to coming to seminary here was like flying into Newark. Uh, and I just want to say that Newark airport does not represent all of New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> I just think that's important. Yeah, thing. that's fair. I mean, it's, spending enough time in Philly. Yeah. There is a North Jersey and a South Jersey. There, and, and, and even a central, right. And, and, but to, the, to think specifically in terms of geography, to go like the flat, land of like pine barrens or like heavily agricultural south jersey yeah. uh up to like north jersey with um you know folks in colorado might quibble but mountains mountain like things uh hey, our mountains are our mountains It'd be nice to them <laughs> <laughs> uh and and uh you know delaware water delaware valley water gap and you know all, all that kind of stuff uh it's uh there, there's there's a lot of beauty uh, in in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, those are there's a smattering of geographies that uh, influence. And I should I mean I should also at least name um, uh, Eastern Oklahoma, which is where my wife is from. And mm -hmm. so we spend time there every year. And so that's like foothills of the Ozarks. There's tons of lakes out there. Um, uh, more more beautiful geography that's that's been influential for that me. Is an equally gorgeous part of the world in its own. It world. is. It is. Um, and so you were a student at Princeton. That's sort of how, that's how, you, a couple that's how you got started. Yeah. And then sort of what happened, like, what is it that, that, that triggered this, for lack of a better term, food and faith journey for you? Um, certainly you grew up in agriculture, but I wonder how that, in, how that really started intersecting with your faith. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, just the, the sort of bare facts of the autobiography, growing up on the farm in Kansas, going and serving in youth ministry for a half dozen years um, uh, in a rural setting, um, but then going back to Kansas and farming there, and then leaving the farm in 2007 to come to Princeton Seminary. And at that point, I mean, I had this kind of 
vivid memory of, of leaving the farm. Um, and, and so those, those years of farming in Kansas before coming to seminary were very much a season of intense vocational discernment. And, you know, I had, had been in ministry, now I'm farming, and it's like, okay, I have to own up to a sense of cult of ministry. So we're going to go to seminary. Yeah. Back up the whole family, head east. And I have this kind of vivid memory of, of driving away from the farm in the moving truck headed for seminary and thinking, you know, I don't know what those years were for. And it was completely beyond the scope of my theological vocational imagination to think that my love of agriculture and my sense of cultural ministry might be one thing instead of two things. Um, so that that's like, that might be the sort of symbol of, of the, of the rupture, right? Of like, well, I guess these things, you know, even though like I would have never said food and faith don't go on, somehow connect For sure but, but functionally right vocationally i couldn't yeah. imagine that there could be this really integral connection um so come come to seminary in 2007 thinking i'm just going to get a two-year degree two-year master's degree and then head back to work uh the 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 ma two-year degree switches into mdiv three-year degree transitions to phd transitions to farminary we're still here uh you know and you know i always tell people the moral of that story is that my wife janelle is a saint um <laughs> but but it was it was my um it was my second year in the master's program that there was another student here at the seminary who found out that i'd been farming before i came to seminary and he pulled me aside and said hey i have this crazy idea I think we should integrate fully accredited theological education, small scale, sustainable agriculture. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. But at that point, I have no idea where, where my life is going. Sure. Um, and, you know, long story short, that was the seed that got planted. And it grew very slowly over all those years of being a student um, and all of the crazy circumstances that came together that. Um, that ultimately yielded uh, a, a farminary um, where we are doing kind of that, that exact integration of, of putting together um, now I would say small scale regenerative agriculture and uh, theological education and formation and asking this question, uh, you know, what does it look like to form leaders for service in the church and the world uh, by putting these things together, by getting seminary students and faculty and the broader community out in that space, hands uh, in the soil. The farminary, I mean, continues to be one of the one of the leaders and encouraging people to do this. But I wonder what your first your first steps in this were. And I think you and I have talked about just sort of the property that that you're on and how that came about. Yeah, you laugh every time I think about it. But <laughs> but but developing a farming program takes time, and and it, developing a farm is never all that smooth. So those, right, right. those first days for you all, what what were they like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a basic premise here is that there are things that the good farmer or gardener or animal husband knows how to do that broadly overlap with the things that a good pastor minister knows how to do and one of those skills is you just have to pay attention to the resources that you have uh where's the abundance already in in, in the uh ecosystem and how do you kind of lean into that and so you know one of the the ways this developed was um while I was in the PhD program, I had an opportunity to, to teach a class because of faculty sabbaticals and whatnot. And so I had a course on the books um, uh, that was titled 
um, food and scripture. And when I proposed it and when it went through the whole system of approvals, it was, you know, the assumption was that's going to happen in one of our classrooms on the main campus. Yeah. Well, after all that happens and this course is on the books, then the farminary conversation continues to progress to the point where at, at some meeting, like just very randomly, somebody kind of just put me on the spot and they're like, well, hey, you're getting ready to teach a class, you know, in, in the spring. Can you teach it at the farm? And like, I have no, like, that, that is not something that has entered my, you know, sure. realm of imagination. But without hesitating, I was like, absolutely. <laughs> Having no idea <laughs> what that was going to look like. But look, it's food and scripture. So, of course, we're going to, you know, we're going to figure this out. Um, and so that was like uh, spring semester 2015. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, so what is that going to look like? And what about the fact that we have this farm, um, which is an incredible resource, uh, one thing the farm does not have is a heated meeting space, for example. <laughs> so what's that going to look like? And so we end up doing that course. It met predominantly after reading week, so during the warm half of the semester, and we concentrated the contact hours all into that, you know, uh, short amount of time. And then as part of that course, we started the, the first ever farminary garden. Um, and we're, we're kind of putting our hands, I mean, literally putting our hands in the soil, uh, planting seeds, and, and specifically thinking about, um, you know, how might kind of the, the uh, core values of sustainable or regenerative agriculture or agrarianism or however you want to talk about it, how might those core values and practices influence the way we think about um, a philosophy of education? So how, how would um, agrarianism or some kind of a deep ecological sensibility think about aims and goals, uh, for example, or the role of teacher and learner or the curriculum or methods or any of that stuff. So, I mean, if you just look at aims and goals, for example, one thing you're going to draw out of a, a kind of a deep ecology as a time frame that is like lifetimes, generations long, as opposed to, well, what can we accomplish in the next 20 minutes, right? Yeah. And that's, there's something productive, there's something really fruitful about thinking about um, both creation and uh, food systems and ministry uh, along those lines. So, so that was, a, I mean, that's an, an initial foray. But I should also say that, that there was something of a, um, a, con a conversion moment for me in the midst of these very early farminary days. Um, my my degree was in uh or my my doctoral work was practical theology christian education and formation like you mentioned my dissertation was on young people in the sabbath which is now the book mm -hmm. um um so there wasn't in my background there's this this farming as practice there's this love of agriculture sure. but there's no like I, I wasn't studying sustainable agriculture as part of my dissertation or anything like yeah. that. Right? Yeah, there wasn't ex anything like explicitly ecological about that. So the farminary starts because of my love of agriculture, because of my sense of call to ministry and teaching and scholarship. And so then I start asking very simple research questions such as, well, so what is our nation's food story? What's yeah. our nation's farming story? And you don't have to look at, or you don't have to try to answer those questions very long before you realize the answers to those questions lead us to some of the most traumatic, painful, dysfunctional dimensions of our collective story. Yeah, uh, there's no telling. 
every time we enter this conversation, we enter every other conversation. Yeah. You, if you're willing to pull the food and soil thread, it's going to take us everywhere. Exactly. Um, and it'll take us to like the threshold of the kingdom of God. Right. And to these um, moments of, of just like um, profound beauty, uh, yeah. reverence, worship of God. Um, and they will take us to the pit of hell uh, and to our grossest alienation, exploitation, and all of the isms. So, so that was like, that was part of, that has been an, a really important part of my journey and one that, that remains with me to this day and one that I don't think can ever be answered, but must, that, that's part of the journey now. Yeah, I was going to say, and that, that, that feels like a vocational call, like to work, yeah. to work through a lifetime, a call of trying to answer yeah. that. And so, yeah. yeah, just that sense of vocation that comes out of you as of you speak um, just seems really upfront um, and powerful. Yeah. I wonder what, because um, it's, it's funny, a, a, there, there's a lot of us that do farm ministry. And the number one thing that we're always wrestling with is getting volunteers to come out and actually do the work. And so I wonder what it is that draws students to your particular work. Um, and, and what is unique about the program at the farm in terms of spirit, spiritual formation, like what is, what is different about the students or, you know, thinking longer down the line, the pastors that you are forming. Um, so why, why are they showing up and why are they so eager to add a lot of sweat and dirt to their seminary education? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I'll, I'll just say like the, um, <laughs> For better or worse, like I, I just think it matters. They're, they're showing up for credit, right? Like, <laughs> yes, yes, I, let's just be honest here. <laughs> but, but I think, but that, like, so, so, so we can think about that, and um, uh, and and a gut reaction might be disparaging, right? Like, well, you know, essentially, you got to pay them, right? In this case, they're getting credit, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and, and there's a conversation, a valid conversation to be had there. But another conversation, I think another valid conversation to have is what are the systems and structures uh, of, our, of our society? What's, how, how, is, how is the kind of the uh, economy in the broadest sense of our, um, of our communities and our institutions, how are these things designed? And, and are, are there sort of systems and structures in place that make it um, uh, as effortless as possible for people to show up in these spaces. Um, so, so part of what we're up against here is what the last hundred years of inertia around sort of agricultural involvement that just keeps pushing people farther and farther and farther away from the land, farther and farther away from food production. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's what, what we have in our favor now is that that whole conversation is shifting to a point where people are actually very curious about this. And they even sense that something's missing when they have no vital connection to land or soil or food production. Yes. So that's the part that the broader context has given that I, that is important for why students show up at the farm and area. Mm -hmm. But there's a qualitative difference between when I open up the farm and just look for volunteers to show up because they want to versus we have a course that is meeting in part at the farm and embedded into that course, a requirement of that course is that they show up for two hours a week in the garden, mm -hmm. right? So like in some sense, that's building the infrastructure into the broader system, which in our case is the, the curriculum at Princeton sure. Theological uh -huh. Seminary. 
and they show up and 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 in that space then they get to make some of these connections and they realize you know among other things the validity of the research that says guess what depression goes down if you have your hands in the soil right uh you know so all all these things um so i don't i i think i think i we shouldn't make light of the curricular component of this it's it's really um um core to the whole farm and area mission and vision and it creates a system that makes it genuinely viable for students to carve out you know uh, you assign something and all of a sudden they're like oh i guess i gotta go do that uh, <laughs> yeah uh, you know, and and i know for me as a pastor you know working on this that the inertia in our community is always there are people who really want to go to church and so they go to the church piece there are people who really want to do the gardening so they go to the garden piece but getting people to do both those things and 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 to and to draw straighter lines between the connection between those two things is always one of the challenges we have as an organization yeah. so the fact the fact that you can lean into a more direct connection between and i don't mean to make a false dichotomy but between the educational side and the farminary side and said so no no actually we're going to draw a straight line between these two things and yeah. part of education is going to be experiencing these things and then just creating an environment where people are going to learn about those connections and discover things that otherwise they couldn't have um, yeah. yeah that 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 whole curriculum piece seems to be essential to the success of what you've been able to do right right it's it is the mission right of yeah. the farminary the mission is we can uniquely form, we can uniquely educate uh, in that context. And, and you know, to sort of put it um, epistemologically, uh, in, in, the for, in the sense of like, well, what do we know and how do we know it? There's knowledge that can emerge in that space that actually can't emerge um, uh, in, in a traditional classroom setting. So um, um, a, a story, an illustrative story, there was, uh, um, a few years ago, I taught a course out at the farm um, with one of our Old Testament professors, who is now our academic dean, um, Dr. Jacqueline Lapsley. And she warned me ahead of time. We had had this, this sort of brainstorm of a class called Text and Terrain, and we'd spend time in Old Testament passages that are rich in their agricultural imagery or content, and then we would garden. And we would simply ask, all right, so how does our time in the garden influence how we read these texts? And how does our time in these texts influence how we spend time in the garden? So like, this is a very simple concept, right? Yeah. Uh, Jack warned me ahead of time. She said, look, uh, you need to know like, I, I kill things, right? No green thumb here, plants wither in my presence. I'm like, no problem, I'll bring the farm side, you bring the Old Testament side, we'll work together. So naturally, in this course of this, uh, uh, in the course of this course, uh, we're reading Genesis two through four, right? It's a garden story, and we hang out in um, uh, Genesis two, and there's the whole bit in Genesis two fifteen where it says God places the Adam in the garden to till and keep it, but those Hebrew words there are avad and shamar, and to translate avad as till is actually kind of suspect it's it's not a specifically agricultural term it more likely means to work or to serve it's the same word that gets used in psalm 100 about serve the lord with gladness yes. you know so that that changes our whole concept of what the human's placement in the garden looks like if it's god places the adam in the garden to serve it yeah versus god places the adam in the garden to till it mm -hmm. And so we had obviously had all these conversations and, and, and um, uh, 
Professor Lapsley had brought all of her Old Testament expertise to the table and we have all this, these talks and it's great. Fast forward later in the semester, we're out in the garden and um, uh, Professor Lapsley is, is there and she's down on her hands and knees and she's planting carrots. And she's, you know, carefully made this groove in, in the bed and she's, you know, one by one dropping these carrot seeds in there. And in the midst of that, it, it strikes her that she is embodying the posture of Avad. Like she is prostrate on the soil, right? Yeah. Serving this little bit of land and, and trusting that by extension, this is a service to God and to this community. And, and there's an insight there, right? There's knowledge that's created there that, is, that was fundamentally impossible to create in a seminar room or a lecture hall and and that's not that doesn't mean we don't need seminar rooms and lecture halls it just is naming what's possible and what's not possible in those different environments yeah so if you have an old testament professor who who couldn't gain that unique kind of knowledge then who in the world could yeah you know that if, if anybody would be able to figure that out like how to embody this you'd think it'd be it'd be that professor but it's the actual activity yeah, I mean, and, and it's right, and it's 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 like this is ecology and ecclesiology one hundred and one, right? Like it's it has to be this interdependent, interconnected whole. Yes. So so like the myth of the ideal scholar is like this this disembodied brain that just floats in some abstract space that has all of the thoughts. They can't have all of the thoughts, right? It's actually impossible for the disembodied brain to have the thoughts. They need the body and the land and the soil and the food and all these things for these, the, the, the whole thing to come together. That is such a fabulous story. <laughs> and, and I think it illustrates, I mean, the power of the farm area that, I mean, education is happening for everyone. Like yeah. there's a, that, I mean, and you and I, I mean, we farmed long enough to know that every time you walk out, you're learning something new. Right. There's another problem you got to solve. Oh, gee, this animal's sick again. What is it this time? And I have no idea, you know, and, but, but that, that constant learning. environment. So it, it really speaks to the power to create a, a shared learning environment for everyone. And I think that's, right. a, that's such a powerful thing. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it, we're always learning something new and, and just as often or more often being reminded of how little we know and what we don't know. Yes. <laughs> but this, this too, right? Like, so we can go to the, to the roots of the words, right? And so the term humility, right? Like it, it, it points to the humus, right? It's, it's literally humility is close to the earth, close to the soil. And um, that's, it, it's a humbling space. That is fabulous. So I want to shift gears on you a little bit because yeah. talking about being this idea of humility and being close to the earth. Um, your unique tradition um, coming from a Mennonite background has, at least in my area, has a long history of this. Um, yeah. Mennonites have lived close to the earth and have practiced, um, if you even think of a train track, you know, have, have practiced their faith in and alongside of agriculture. And so I wonder... And we'd love for you to share a little bit about the unique the unique ways that that has formed you, and how that how that might be informing both you know your understanding of ministry and and your work at the farminary. So, born and raised Mennonite, my both of my parents grew up Mennonite. Um, I, when I was little, I was told the story over and over again about my great 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 grandfather, Elder Jacob Stuckey, who led a mass migration of Mennonites from Russian Poland to central Kansas. Uh, this entire congregation, save one young adult male, 
picked up and moved because of the, the threat of military conscription uh, in, in Prussia at the time. Um, and so, so uh, they as the story has been told to me, they showed up um, in New York um, on the boat and were met there by railroad officials who had the deeds for the, this land. And, and here again, right, like it all gets complicated. Uh, all the land stories and, and why does the railroad own think they own the yeah, land, exactly. yeah. right? all these things but the Mennonites showed up and had a reputation for being good farmers and and so basically recruited them to go to, to central Kansas and some of them went up to South Dakota and, and other places um, and 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 so I you know kind of grew up in that environment where it's generations of Mennonites who have roots deep in the soil and um, uh, it was the Mennonites who brought, as I understand, they brought over the hard red winter wheat. Um, mm. That is, is you know, winter wheat's kind of the norm now uh, for wheat production. And um, so, so the agricultural roots are are very deep and deeply entwined into um, the Mennonite faith. And and even before you know the migration to the U.S., uh, as the story gets told. Um, and I, people will need to go do the research on this. On this, I can't, you know, uh, uh, verify all the facts. But as this, as legend has it, Catherine the Great um, recruited Mennonites into the that area of Russian Poland um, again because of their agricultural prowess. Um, so, so there's all of that rich agricultural history, and and it was always practiced in the context of this distinct theological tradition, which tends to emphasize. Um, uh, simplicity, uh, community, uh, nonviolence, um, adult baptism or believers' baptism, and so there's a there's a way that you can see all these things kind of mixing, mingling, being a part of this one coherent whole. But fast forward to 2007, right? And I've I've been on the farm. I worked for a family of Mennonite farmers, right? Yeah. Or a family of Mennonites <laughs> who, had, who had their roots in farming, but like, sure. you know, had kind of gone their different ways. And, and I'm in the midst of this intense vocational thing. And I'm, and, and I can't imagine that the things would go together, that, that the call to ministry and, um, and the agricultural, and, and, and agriculture would go uh, together. So there's like, so something breaks down somewhere along the way, and I can, you know, I can speculate about what it was, yeah. but I think part of it is is just a much broader stream of: do we chase it back to the Enlightenment? Do we chase it back to even a uh, an older sort of um, division dualism between body and soul, or or mm-hmm. body and spirit, and and, um, uh, and so you know, I, I, I've now for almost a decade have been trying to weave this thing back together. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one way I do that with with kind of specific reference to a kind of a core Mennonite Anabaptist value, um, the earliest Anabaptists um, uh, in in a uh, German context, there was a lot of them that, that kind of emerged in in Germany. They had this term, uh, the German word uh, Galassenheit, um, and the term basically means a sort of complete yielding of oneself into God's hands. Mm. Uh, and so for me, like this is this idea of like what it means to, I mean, this is a, a, a fraught term and maybe it's beyond redemption, but, but there is a submitting of myself to the land, to the soil, to 
the you know that broader ecosystem certainly a yielding of myself um and i think there's a lot there as far as like faith formation theological understanding and and this conviction that we might actually experience the creator in the context of the creation and and this this thing that i desperately need to remember which is i'm not the creator yeah and i'm not in control and um and do I know what it means to really like be with something that's not me, yeah. whether it's the soil or my neighbor or a rutabaga? Anyway, that was that might have been a much longer exposition than you wanted. But, no, uh, no, no, no. I think it's fascinating. Just that history and reaching back and talking about this is really useful because I think it illustrates for us that that sometimes I find myself arguing with people who think that this whole food and faith movement feels like a boutique movement. I mean, you Mm -hmm. kind of mentioned it and people are like, Oh, well now everybody's into local and all that kind of stuff. And so, so this church is this church movement is just trying to latch onto this and try to, you know, try to make, make some hay, so to speak on, on a cultural moment. And what I'm saying is we reach back way farther that and discover that our ancestors in the faith have been practicing this. Yeah. uh, practicing love love of land and love of neighbor and dealing with persecution and running away from that like like these two things have always been intertwined right. and one of the cool things that i found about this movement it has taken me outside of my own boundaries mm-hmm. i i have anabaptist roots as well part of my part of my getting here was i had to leave a little bit of that mm-hmm. but then like you saying wait a second there's actually stuff back there that's really going to be useful for me yeah. um it may, maybe it's in my DNA. It's certainly in my intellectual history. But go yeah. back and, and recover those things so right. that we speak to this moment. Yeah, yeah. And so the Anabaptist Church is one of those places I've ended up, and I'm like, wow, there's a lot more I need to learn here because we've always done this, and I can learn from that. Yeah, yeah. And and I think like there's a responsibility for us to go even further back, like all the way back, right, and to recognize um, this creation story in Genesis 1, the creation story in Genesis 2, right, are both explicit about God's provision of food for creation yes. uh, and for humankind as part of creation. And so, um, so yeah, this is like, I, I think we can go back uh, and, and should go back to some Anabaptist roots, but there's no, I mean, if we want to talk about an intimate connection between people and faith and land and food, um, our our Jewish roots are are overflowing with um, with inspiration and and content and and it and it's it does go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, and and I think you're right about that. And and the Hebrew scriptures never popped until I really started reading them through the land. You know, I mean, yeah. you grow up in youth group, and I mean, oh, you do David Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den, but when I started looking at them through this lens of land and provision and, and economy and social justice and all those kind of things, um, all of a sudden Leviticus starts to, I don't know if it'll ever make sense, but it starts to come alive. Like, wow, this is actually speaking to a deeper sense of justice and what God's justice and what God's provision looks like. Yeah. And, so, and then that just, you know, that is going to feed, you know, as, as a Christian, that's, that's going to feed the way that I, that I now look at Jesus, that God incarnate, well, it, 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 it's incarnating a tradition that he also inherited. And so, yeah, yeah. so yeah, you, you cannot get around, you cannot get around the Hebrew scriptures in this conversation for very long. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of Hebrew scriptures, one of the things that comes with creation is God creates everything and then God rests. And mm-hmm. you had already mentioned that um, your dissertation was around the notion of Sabbath and rest. Um, and you've, you've got a book out now um, called wrestling with rest. 
And so was wondering if you could just give us a little, a little peek into what that looks like um, and, and what it is you're trying to communicate to your audience. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the whole argument of the book is the book doesn't read very ecological on at first glance. Sure. And the argument, the main um, sort of thesis of the whole work is that Sabbath is a practice in receiving life through death. Hmm. So, <laughs> so, so the invitation, God's invitation to humankind, and I think to all creation, but specifically to humankind through the Sabbath is to stop. So the, the Sabbath at its root, at, at its Hebrew roots, means to stop or to cease, and specifically to stop work. And um, the trick about stopping work is that that kind of lays bare the degree to which we have enmeshed our identities with our work. Mm, yeah. So if we've, if we've allowed our identities to be reduced to what we can achieve and accomplish, it is going to induce more than likely a substantial amount of anxiety to stop. And I think that's the point. That feels like it's speaking to a cultural moment right now. Yeah, right. So, so I think, you know, and, and I'm not the first to, to, um, uh, uh, to, to say that Sabbath is like a little death. I'm actually stealing, uh, borrowing, citing my sources. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor actually and it has said this, that Sabbath is a little death. And that, um, and that on the Sabbath, all the things that prop us up during the week are taken out from under us. And we're stuck with this question of, so who am I and why am I here? And, um, but that, that, um, that little death of, of the lesser identities rooted in achievement or production um, gets, comes along with this astonishing promise that our identities were never supposed to be rooted what we could achieve or what we could accomplish. Um, so then, so part of the book, right, is, is, is looking at various um, scripture and, and theology and, and uh, that seven-day creation account, right, of, of God doing all these things, creating all these things. And the theological tradition has, has um, routinely tried to see the creation of humankind as like the peak of creation. Sure. Um, and, and it's created all kinds of problems for us. Yes, um, so Carl Barth, among others has been like, wait a minute, that's, that's really, it's just not the, it's not a six day story. It's a seven day story. Yeah. And the peak, the pinnacle of creation is, is God's Sabbath rest. And that part of that story is that you can read these six days and, and, and you get to the close of day six and God's created humankind and it feels like God's even given them this job description, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. All the, So it seems like if the story is just going to keep going according to, to its trajectory, day seven is going to show up and humanity is going to get to work. But that's not how the story goes. Uh, instead, humankind's, as Bart's point, humankind's first full day of existence is a day of God's Sabbath rest and not a day of work. And so at that point in the story, they have no work of their own to reflect on. At that point in the story, the only work those first humans can reflect on is God's work. And so at that point in the story, Sabbath is, is sheer grace. Yeah. Uh, and, and there from the dawn of creation, grace precedes the law. 
And so how might that in, like just turn upside down our understandings of the Sabbath for it to be not something that we earn because we got enough work done uh, or because we achieved enough or accomplished enough or consumed enough or harvested enough or planted enough or weeded enough or fill in the blank enough, but it's just a gift. Uh, and, it's, and, and it's a gift that reminds us um, of who we really are as God's beloved children, even as it kind of cuts out from under us uh, the temptation to trust these other things. Um, and in so many ways, it does, it does repeat this theme of, of humility, right, of, of drawing us back to we're not in control. And, um, and if we need, you know, any reminders of that, you could, you know, go to the climate thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and all these things. So, um, so that's a snapshot. And, you know, the, the book uh, is, it looks specifically at young people um, um, and, and kind of adolescence as uh, a, a season of life that has a particular need for, uh, for rest and for sleep. Um, but the implications are, are for everyone. And the invitation is for everyone. Are we willing to let our identity get rooted in something um, more substantial than what we achieve or don't achieve or accomplish or don't accomplish, but rather in the God who gives life and work and rest in yeah. the first place. No, and, and I think, I think aiming at, at adolescence um, is so important. Um, because I was talking to a doctor the other day and was talking about anxiety medication. And she said to me, we got to put this stuff in the water. Like mm -hmm. the idea being that there's so much anxiety. Um, and certainly, you know, as, as we record on the day of the climate strike, I mean, just anxiety about that, yeah. let alone, I mean, which is something that's outside of all of our control, let alone all the things that feel like they're in control of, you know, grades and social yeah. realities and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like we're entering a moment where, um, there was a generation that worked their tails off and then there's a generation saying, wait a second, why are we working our tails off? That's kind of where I feel yeah, like yeah. I still feel that pressure to work all the time, but I'm at least like, I'm not sure why this is good for me. Right. And maybe just maybe we can start to turn a tide where we say, actually, we are more than our work. Um, and, yeah. and, and that is, that is God ordained. That is God intended. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this, yeah. this feels like a book that would be great for, would be a great read for a youth group or maybe even for parents who are just like, Hey, yeah. I, my, my kids are stressed. How do I help them? Yeah. yeah. It turns out that there is a website for the book wrestling with rest.com. And at the, at the website, there are free study guides. Um, uh, and one of them is geared uh, specifically towards parents. Sweet. Um, and, and just to, to, to make one important connection, right. There is, there, there's so much conversation that can happen at the intersection of, of the Sabbath work and the ecology, sustainability, agricultural work. And, you know, among other things, one, just to name one obvious thing, um, how wonderful would it be for creation if humanity just stopped for a day? <laughs> right? If, yeah, if no, just, yeah, you couldn't be more right. Yeah. If we just stopped our consuming, stopped our endless activity, stopped our, you know, like emissions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If we Stop just stopped for one day, like what would that do to our to our emissions if we just didn't have any for one day a week? Like it would, it's there there's there are really radical ecological implications here. And part of the reason we're in the mess that we're in is because we we have refused to stop. I agree. Yeah, the implications of Sabbath. I mean, just they just continue to roll. Much like this food and faith conversation. Every time yeah, you step yeah. into one part of it, you are stepping into everything else. Um, yeah. And so, I am so grateful this book exists, um, and, uh, and looking forward to you know to sharing it and hoping that our listeners go and go and check it out. I appreciate it.
you have filled so many with hope. I mean, I remember the one time I got to come up and to hang out with your class. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. And it's, and there are other people doing it. So you have filled people with hope and Farminary is just giving hope um, to, to people like me who are trying to do it, to pastors, to students, um, to even theological education and thinking about there's, there's hope for theological education on the backside of some of the struggles we're having. Um, but what fills you with hope? What at the end of the day keeps you getting up and showing up at the office and in the classroom and at the farm every day? Yeah, I have to go with compost. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> uh, it's the compost pile just proclaims the gospel in such a such a glorious way. Oh, I wish Anna was here to let have her listen to this sermon. <laughs> it's yeah. There's so many layers. One of them is. Um, there are times in tending the compost pile when you are literally just up to your knees in the stench, right? And, and it just, and it reeks and it's, it's, it's a total mess. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes that's the status of things when you're just dumping the bucket, you know, onto the compost pile to start with, depending on, you know, all the things. Um, but, but like there's, you don't compost for the sake of the stink and the sake of the stench, right? You compost because you know that within the banana peel and the apple core and the coffee grounds that are dying, um, there is this bigger story that's, that's being written and that it's always moving towards new life. And so um, the hope at the end of the day is not that we're going to be able to skirt death. Uh, the hope at the end of the day is that death doesn't get the last word. And that, um, uh, and that we follow a resurrection God is just, it's incredible. Um, and to be reminded of that while you're up to your knees in the stench is, is, is hope inspiring. Well said, and a great, place to, a great place to bring our conversation to a conclusion. So one other thing is just we want our people to be able to follow you however and wherever they can be in touch with your work. So where would you drive folks to go to keep in touch with Farminary and with uh, you know, whatever you're writing next um, and where, where you're posting? Yeah, yeah. So you can check out the Farminary website. If you Google Farminary, I'm, I think we're the only one. Um, and, uh, and there, there is, uh, some social media presence for the farminary. There's Facebook and Instagram and other things that I don't, that I'm not in charge of, but, but, uh, uh, I have students who know how to do those things. Lucky uh, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I don't know if this is safe or fair, but here, this is, this is my, uh, cell phone oh. right there. Um, right. For our listeners, that is a wonderfully old cell phone. It, that's an LG Cosmo 3 with a full QWERTY keyboard. I can text and talk, but there's no so email. Hipster. There's no... <laughs> I, look, I've had this phone a long time. Uh, anyway, um, so, but there is, there's some farminary social media out there. Um, the book website is wrestlingwithrest.com. I think those are, those are the major things. Fabulous. Well, Nate, it has been a real joy to see you and to chat again um, and to be re-inspired by your work with Farminary and the book and Wrestling with Rest. Please make sure you come back at some point and just continue yeah. the conversation. I'd love it. I really appreciate it, Sam. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deaver. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast.
Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.